Thank you for listening to our podcast. Church at the Well is a community reintroducing Jesus in Vermont through worship, service, creativity, and community. Good morning, friends. Happy spring. Um, If you hear some roosters or the neighbor's geese or some songbirds or some dogs barking, well, this is a sign of spring. I'm recording this outside on the back porch. Well, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, And if you've been with us for the past few weeks, you've been walking with us as we follow Jesus on his journey toward the cross. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Being a Christian isn't just about believing in Jesus. It's about following him and walking in his way. And if we do that, then like Jesus, we will walk through the wilderness, uh, the place of challenges and temptations, where God may feel distant. We will also ascend to the Mount of Transfiguration and get a glimpse of glory on the mountaintop, where God strengthens us and he commissions us. And eventually, we'll come to a place of relinquishment, a place where we learn to choose God's will over our own. And for Jesus, that place of relinquishment was the Garden of Gethsemane. Before we read about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, let me give you some context. Jesus has just come to Jerusalem with his disciples to celebrate Passover. He has told his disciples that in accordance with the scriptures, he's going to die. And then he's going to be raised to life. And by the way, he even makes a meetup plan with them for after the resurrection. In Matthew 26, 32, he says, After I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. I love that detail. But of course, the disciples are pretty confused about all of this. It just doesn't make any sense to them. In their eyes, Jesus is about to be crowned king, as Adam pointed out last week, not lose his life. Well, while they're in Jerusalem, Jesus and the disciples share a Passover meal, what we refer to as the Last Supper. And here Jesus breaks bread as a picture of what is about to happen to his body. And he raises a cup of wine as a picture of his blood about to be spilled for the forgiveness of sins. And he invites the disciples to eat the broken bread and to drink from the raised cup as a sign of a new covenant, a new covenant between God and people. A covenant sealed by the sacrifice, not of a mere lamb, but by the lamb of God, Christ himself. Jesus then does something usually only a servant or a slave would do in ancient Israel. He washes his disciples' feet, and he does this as a way of teaching them to humbly serve others. And then we come to our passage, Matthew 26, verses 36 through 44 where Jesus and his disciples go out to the Mount of Olives. So let's read. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over there to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. 
Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, Couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. For the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, My father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. When he returned to them again, he found them sleeping, for they couldn't keep their eyes open. So he went to pray a third time, saying the same things again. Then he came to the disciples and said, Go ahead and sleep. Have your rest. But look, the time has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Up, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is here. This morning, I want us to look at three things that are going on in this scene that I think we would do well to pay attention to as we approach our own Gethsemanes. Here are the three things I see Jesus doing as he faces the reality of what's to come. He's being honest with himself before the Father. He's wrestling with the Father in prayer, and he's relinquishing his will to the Father's will. And I want us to briefly look at each one of those things. So let's start with honesty. Jesus shows us a surprising and raw honesty. He, he tells Peter, James, and John, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. You really can't get much more honest than that. By the way, these are the same three disciples whom he let have a glimpse of his glory when he took them up a mountain and was transfigured before them. It's interesting to me that the disciples Jesus chooses to share his glory most intimately with in the Gospels are the ones who also, uh, he lets see his deepest sorrow. And then we see Jesus, uh, after sharing this with the disciples, uh, this grief in his heart, we see him praying. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's just been completely honest with his closest trusted friends about the state of his soul. And now he's being completely honest with God. He's not hiding his anguish. He's not pretending everything's okay. He's not stuffing the way he feels and presenting an artificial peace or a manufactured sense of resignation. He is pouring out his feelings and desires to the Father in their fullness and also in their messiness. In another gospel account, we read that at Gethsemane, Jesus sweated drops of blood. That's how messy these moments of anguish were. I think we have to recognize that in Christian culture, there can be an unspoken pressure to feel or appear to feel a certain way. And namely, that way is happy, grateful, joyful, content, always at peace. There's a, a false narrative, I think. And this is the false narrative. It says, since Jesus has paid the price for my sins and won my salvation, I have no excuse to be sad, angry, lonely, or grieved. In fact, if I feel sad, angry, lonely, or grieved, 
It's probably a sign that my faith isn't strong enough. Well, this way of thinking is simply not biblical. For one thing, this false narrative is simply not faithful to human experience. It doesn't make room for us to to be who God created us to be, creatures designed with a broad spectrum of very real emotions. Secondly, it doesn't acknowledge that we live in a tragically broken world in which real suffering exists, other people's suffering and our own. And that truth, it doesn't change when we become Christians. We are just as vulnerable to suffering as those who don't follow Christ, and perhaps more. There is a third reason we need to resist uh, this false narrative, and it comes directly from the Gospels and the life of Jesus. We're told in the story of Lazarus' death that Jesus said two particular words that I think for me change everything. Are you ready for them? Jesus wept. Need I say more? Jesus wept. Let me ask you, what gets in the way for you of being honest with yourself about about what you're feeling, about how you're doing, about how it is with your soul? What gets in the way of sharing the state of your soul with a trusted friend who can bear witness? The way Jesus shared the state of his soul with Peter, James, and John. And once you've come to that place of honesty with yourself, uh, perhaps also a trusted friend, are you willing to take your feelings in honesty before God? You know, when we do this, when we bring to God our sorrow, our anger, our frustration, whatever it is, These feelings become more than mere feelings. They become a sacrifice, an offering, a prayer, a prayer that is acceptable to God. So let's move on to talk about Jesus wrestling with the Father. We see him not just pouring out his emotions before the Father, but wrestling with him. There's a difference between what the Father's chosen path for Jesus is and what Jesus would prefer for the path forward for him. What does Jesus do with that difference? Well, let's start with what he doesn't do. Here's three things he doesn't do. He doesn't insist on doing things his own way. Scripture indicates that he could have. Conversation ended, but he didn't. Secondly, Jesus doesn't try to manipulate the Father. He could have reminded God of all the good works he had done, the ways in which he had been faithful. He could have tried to get God to change his mind about the salvation plan, but he didn't. And thirdly, Jesus uh, could have uh, resigned numbly and stoically with a, just a sense of fatalistic resignation to the Father's will. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't jump to a naive Whatever you say, God, no questions asked response, uh, pretending everything's just going to be dandy if he, if he says yes to God and, 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 and if, if he doesn't count the cost. But no, he counts the cost. So what does Jesus do here? He pleads with the Father, and I don't want us to miss that. He pleads with the Father in a long, deep into the night, raw and honest conversational prayer. And he keeps pleading. 
Do you see that he doesn't just ask God to take the cup away once? Three times he goes to prayer and asks God to let that cup of suffering pass him by. Have you ever pleaded with God? Whatever the outcome of your pleading was, I want to take a moment just to affirm that this is something God makes room for. And you know what? Jesus isn't the first in scripture to plead with God. There are a number of other people who do. We see Hannah pleading with God in the Old Testament, um, asking God to, to give her a son in her barrenness. We see David pleading for the life of his sick child, the child born out of adultery with Bathsheba. We also see Abraham pleading with God, Moses, Job, and Daniel, just to name a few. Now, some of them got what they wanted and some of them didn't. But they all show us one thing and that it's okay to plead with God. But isn't pleading selfish, you might ask? Well, pleading with God might feel selfish, yes, But here's the thing, it's a step in the direction toward God rather than a step away from him. And you know, stepping toward God is an act of faith, and it's an act of faith that he always honors. It's true that we deceive ourselves if we think we can manipulate God or bargain with God or get him to change his mind, perhaps. Um, But at the same time, it's also true that he wants us to pour out our hearts to him, as Psalm 62.8 says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. So if you, if, you, if for you, honesty with God looks like pleading with him, then you're in good company because that's what honesty with God looked like for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's move on to the third thing that Jesus is doing here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let's talk about relinquishment. Jesus is relinquishing his will to the Father's will. He says, not my will, but yours be done. At the end of his honesty, at the end of his wrestling with God, Jesus comes to a place of open hands. He loosens his grip on what he prefers, and he receives with open hands what the Father has chosen for him. He now has a complete surrendered trust. Uh, Author uh, Richard Foster says that the prayer of relinquishment is a move from struggle to release. He calls, well, he says relinquishment is a grace-filled releasing of our will and a flowing into the will of the Father. And that's precisely what we see here, a flowing of the Son's will into the will of the Father. It's breathtaking when you think about it. It's breathtaking. Jesus chooses what he doesn't want. And, you know, following Jesus means that there will be times when we will choose what we don't want. And it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. It goes against human survival instinct even. But you know what? It's actually possible. And here's why. Because of the work of the Spirit in us, and the example of Christ before us. When we choose what we don't want, it's a powerful evidence of the Spirit at work. It points to a living God and a resurrected Christ. And when we choose what we don't want, we're able to say with Paul, it is no longer I who lives, but Christ in me.
like to share a story of relinquishment from my own life. Um, for the past four and a half years, I've had the tremendous privilege of living in an exquisite 19th century farmhouse where I'm recording the sermon, uh, fully furnished, owned by a, a Vermont family who has been in Oregon for the past number of years. The farmhouse is on acres and acres of hilly pastures with woods and hills and a lot of open sky and the neighbors uh, have goats and sheep and um, piglets and lots of fun uh, animal friends and as a poet and someone who just loves nature and the country and beauty and quiet this has been a gift beyond my wildest imagination when I moved in, it was like a dream. I simply couldn't believe that this was my new place to live. And then, a few days after I moved in, I went from ecstatic delight to a crippling anxiety. You see, I suddenly became dreadfully afraid of losing it. What if the family in Oregon decided to move back early and they canceled my lease? Or God forbid, there was a house fire and my opportunity to live in this beautiful place went up in smoke, literally. I was clinging so tightly to this gift that my fear of losing it was preventing me from even being able to enjoy it, let alone fully receive it. I knew I had to unclench my grip and be open-handed before God, the God who gives and the God who takes away. And by God's grace with prayer, I was able to do that. Well, fast forward to today. It has been a magical four and a half years here at the farmhouse, and now I'm getting ready to move because in a few weeks in April, the family is going to be moving back from Oregon to Vermont. And amazingly, God has opened up a tremendous living opportunity for me elsewhere and has provided above and beyond for my next step. And that has made the prospect of leaving the farmhouse so much easier. But even so, a few weeks ago, I, I started to become unusually sentimental about things. Like I'd look out the kitchen window and I just burst into tears thinking about missing that particular view. Um, and I couldn't shake the sorrow for days. It started to become crippling, kind of like the anxiety I felt when I first moved in. And you know, this caught me by surprise because I thought I had relinquished this place to God four and a half years ago. And you know what? I had. But it turns out I needed to relinquish it again. Have you ever had to relinquish something twice? <laughs> or perhaps uh, more than twice or maybe even every day. It took me a, a while to, to take all of this to God, but at some point I realized I, I needed to be completely honest with God about my feelings. And so I brought them to him and I, I started to tell him about all the things that I was feeling sad about saying goodbye to. And after I got through just uh, two or three things on that very long mental list, I realized something. Actually, I realized a whole bunch of things all at the same time. I don't know if that ever happens to you. Um, but I realized that beneath this teary-eyed sentimentality, I actually had a rooted and grounded faith that had not been shaken. It was intact. I really did believe that God was arranging things in my life. I had seen the evidence of his hand in, in his amazing provision for me for my next step. I really did believe that God was leading me, that the future is good. 
Well, the problem is, and here's the other thing I realized, at some point, I had let the center of operations for my life shift uh, from that rooted and grounded faith to a place of shallow clinging, a place of teary-eyed sentimentality. You know, it was not a bad thing for me to have those emotions, and I'm sure I'm not completely uh, done with them. There will be tears uh, in this process ahead. However, uh, and there would be something wrong, right, if I didn't uh, feel sad about leaving a very good thing that God has given to me. But instead of letting these feelings nudge me to God, I was, for the most part, simply wallowing in them, letting them take over, allowing them to blind me from seeing God's hand at work, uh, leading me and providing for me going forward. You see, we, we can have a faith, but uh, it's really important that our faith isn't an add-on to our lives. It has to become the very center of operations for who we are. Where is the center of operations in your life right now? Well, Richard Foster, who I quoted earlier, says that relinquishment is a crucifixion of the will. It's a kind of dying to ourselves. It's letting our will be nailed to the cross. And that may sound austere and even extreme, but here's the good news, as Foster puts it, and the good news that I've been experiencing. Crucifixion always has resurrection tied to it, he says. In the crucifixion of the will, God is not destroying the will, but transforming it so that over a process of time and experience, we can freely will what God wills. So when we relinquish our will to God, we don't do it with a numb, fatalistic resignation. We do it with hope. And an amazing thing begins to happen as our will is released, flowing into God's will. His will becomes our desire and we cease from striving. And as we cease from striving, there comes a settledness, a freedom, a sustaining peace. We see the settledness, by the way, in Jesus when he's arrested. If you read the account of his arrest, everyone in that scene is on edge but him. And when he stands before Pontius Pilate, he speaks freely and he freely holds his tongue. And when he's nailed to the cross, he's able to minister to the criminals on his left and on his right and even forgive those who have hammered the nails into his hands. That's what relinquishment to the Father's will looks like. A ceasing from striving, a settledness, a freedom, a sustaining peace. As we wrap up, I want to give you a moment to consider what the Lord's invitation to you is in this passage, in this word today. Is he inviting you to be honest with yourself in a way that you haven't allowed yourself to be? Is he inviting you to wrestle with him in prayer about something rather than ignore it or be passively resigned about it? Is there something he's inviting you to relinquish? Perhaps something you've been needing to relinquish for a while. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're seeking truth. Well, even if you're not sure if you believe in God, I want to encourage you to be very honest with yourself before the possibility of God. And I want to encourage you to wrestle with that possibility, to wrestle with him. You see, believing in God isn't about 
just saying yes. It's not about saying yes without thinking or struggling or asking questions. It's about coming to him with your questions, with your struggles, and letting him meet you there in the midst of them. And when he does, you come away from that knowing him, which is entirely different from merely believing in him. And what is more, you get a glimpse of just how well-known you are to him and how much he cares about the details of your life. So what is God's invitation for you today in this passage? What is the word within the word for you? I'm going to give us a few moments of silence so we can allow God to be putting on our hearts the invitation that he has for each one of us today. And then I'm going to close us in a prayer that I'll be inviting you to pray with me. Would you pray with me? Loving Father, I yield myself to you. Help me be honest with you about how it is with my soul. Thank you that when I pour out my heart to you, you are my refuge. May your will be my delight and may your love be the pattern of my living. I offer you my hopes for the future and my concerns about the past. Do with them what you will, when you will, as you will. I place into your loving hands my family and my friends. Care for them with a care beyond what I can give. Whatever I am clinging to out of a need for control, help me to release to you in faith. Free me from striving. Settle me with your peace. Quiet me with your love. Amen. You're listening to the official podcast of Church at the Well in Burlington, Vermont. For more information about Church at the Well, including gathering time and location, events, and how you can financially support the podcast, please visit us online at wellchurchvt.com.